0: Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I have some exciting news, two calls to action. Uh, I'm first, I'm having my first ever giveaway contest. Um, So you can enter to win a really great uh, impact investing gift pack valued at over $500. It includes a $250 gift card to Patagonia, which has really amazing gear and clothing and is a great example of a socially responsible company. Uh, It includes a free responsible investment consultation, a one-hour consultation with me to help uh, look at your investment portfolio and make suggestions for how you can better align it with your values and make it more sustainable. And it includes two books that I think every impact investor should read. One is the book we're discussing on today's podcast with uh, John Lakomnik. And the other is Sir Ronald Cohen's new book, Impact, Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change. And exciting news, spoiler alert, uh, Sir Ronald Cohen's going to be joining me on the podcast. We're recording this week. So that will be an upcoming episode, which I'm super excited about. And all you have to do to enter to win is subscribe to the Impact Investing podcast if you're not already. Uh, Leave a review of the podcast, which really helps us surface in the ratings and reviews. And uh, subscribe to the Impact Investing Newsletter. Many of you are listening to the podcast and are not subscribed to the newsletter. There's a ton of really great resources and information to help you get smarter about impact investing. So if you want to enter the contest, visit davidoleary.ca slash giveaway. And uh, the contest runs now through September 4th, where I will choose one lucky winner at random from the entrance. Second call to action I'm putting together an infographic that is mapping out the Canadian impact investing landscape. Uh, so you can view the infographic at davidoleary.ca slash infographic. And I'd love your feedback uh, on it. Uh, it's a work in progress. There's a few ways you can help. One, just give me feedback on the categories, how I've defined them or organized them. Two, if you see any um great organizations that are missing from the landscape or categories that are missing, please let me know. And you can email me at dave at davidoleary.ca. Or if you represent an organization uh, and want to have your organization included in the infographic, and I'm also, there'll be an accompanying data data table that shares a little more information about each of the firms listed in the, um, included in the infographic. Uh, There is a Uh, Form You can complete right at the website. So davidoleary.ca slash infographic. And I'd love any feedback uh, that anybody has. Also, just check out the newsletter. This week's uh, uh, edition that comes with this podcast is just full of really great, interesting reads and some really cool job postings. There's a ton of really great job postings out there right now um, that I've been coming across. Uh, some from a Capital, which is a black owned impact manager uh, at a San Francisco new power labs is hiring, uh, which is a really cool think tank coming up in Canada, investigating the power imbalances between uh, funders and marginalized communities. And, uh, just one or other off the top of my head is a, an open position with Cerona Asset Management, and um, they are going to be on an upcoming episode of the podcast. So uh, it's a really cool organization doing great impact investing through the global south. So uh, check out the newsletter. With that let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. In 1952, Harry Markowitz published a now-famous article where he proposed that investors should optimize portfolio-expected return relative to volatility. In other words, Markowitz helped investors realize that by owning a diverse basket of investments, they could significantly reduce their risk without suffering a commensurate reduction in their expected return. And it was this insight that marked the birth of modern portfolio theory, or MPT and by the late 1960s would come to change how investors across the globe thought about investing. The trouble is, some of the assumptions underpinning MPT are keeping more investors from embracing ESG and impact investing. Today's guest, John Lakomnik, joins us to discuss his new book, Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters. In the book, which is co-authored by James Hawley, The authors give a thorough accounting of how many of the assumptions underlying MPT are unrealistic or mistaken. For instance, MPT dictates that investors can mitigate systematic risks, which are the risks associated with specific individual investments, by diversifying their portfolios, but that they cannot influence large systemic risks, which are those risks or threats to the entire system such as climate change or massive geopolitical instability. LaComnec and Harley, instead, that investors can and do affect systemic risks. For evidence, one need look no further than the 2008 financial crisis, where investors fueled the rise of mortgage-backed securities and other investments that eventually threatened to topple the global financial system. Similarly, MPT is wrong to assert that investors cannot mitigate systemic, systemic, environmental, or social risks, such as climate change. They can, but doing so requires investors to utilize tactics that aren't part of their traditional toolbox, such as shareholder engagement and policy and advocacy work, etc. John is well-positioned to write this book. He's currently Managing Director of Sinclair Capital, a consultancy to institutional investors, and he was also formerly a senior city official running New York City's pension funds, where he oversaw $80 billion in assets. He also co-founded the International Corporate Governance Network, or ICGN, which now represents investors from 43 countries overseeing some $42 trillion in assets. John has been a board member on public, private, and not-for-profit companies, and is the three-time recipient of the NACD's Directorship 100 Award for being one of the 100 most influential people in U.S. corporate governance. In this episode of the podcast, John and I discuss the major arguments from his book, including the importance of MPT, some of the flaws in its underlying assumptions, how the very success of MPT has further undermined the assumptions that underpin it, and why MPT apologists who argue that ESG and impact investing will underperform have it wrong. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when John responds directly to a conversation from MBT apologists who argue that ESG and impact investing are doomed to underperform. With that, let's get on to the podcast. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks much, David. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I'm. I've really enjoyed uh, your book. I first came across your work through Delilah Rothenberg, and I watched you to deliver a webinar for the Pre Distribution Initiative on the concepts from the book. And since then, I had a chance to read the book, and it was been really great in terms of helping me crystallize some of my thinking and and articulate some of the things I had been feeling intuitively, but and having trouble, you know, expressing clearly. And then, of course, it advanced a, a bunch of other thoughts and ideas that I hadn't considered yet. So I'm excited to, to get in and unpack this. How's the reception been to the book so far?
1: Reception has been great. I think it's it's been interesting because it is a finance book, meaning it starts with financial theory and it winds up in a place that is very sustainability friendly, but gets there by traveling a finance best as opposed to starting with sustainability and backing into finance. And in fact, along the way, it's not a modest book. It takes on a Nobel prize winning theory. and tries to fundamentally redefine what we consider the art of investing. And yet some of the best reaction has been from academics as well as practitioners, who my, one of my favorite was a uh, European finance professor. Who told me that she loved having the book because it answers all these questions that her prof- her students kept asking her that she would explain. Yes, we teach this, but and now she could just have the book. Uh,
0: yeah, I think that's a really great way of describing this. A similar feeling that I was having, in, in terms of it starts with the financial theory and doesn't back into it from an ESG perspective, which is really helpful. <laughs> it's the first yes. I've seen anybody do.
1: It is. In some ways, it was a very easy book to write because practice has led theory. But it's the first book that I know of that provides a coherent financial theory as to why investors, particularly institutional investors, act the way they do when modern portfolio theory says they shouldn't do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're going to unpack a lot of this stuff and start to uncloak it a little bit here as we go through the discussion and really dig in and wrestle with some of the terms from the book. I'd love to start with what, if you give the audience a little bit of background in terms of what equipped you to be able to be able to um, take on an ambitious subject like this. As you say, you're taking on a a Nobel Prize winning financial uh, economist and theorist. Talk a little bit about your background. I'd love to hear more.
1: Sure. The origin stories of the book, if you will. So... In the 1990s, I was running the investment side of the New York City Pension Funds as a senior New York City official, and they were the fourth largest pension fund in the United States, the 10th largest pool of institutional capital at that time. And as you might imagine, that's a very busy position. You're negotiating derivative agreements, you're hiring managers, you're managing money internally, you're looking at trades, you're doing academic work, you're managing a staff of 60 people, et cetera. And one day I had time to just sit and think. And I realized all this motion was a little misplaced, that what I really needed was someplace to put at that time, 80 billion U.S. dollars toward a rate of return above inflation forever. In one sense, that's a very nice epiphany to have because it crystallizes what your job is. In another sense, it's a feeling of helplessness because what you realize is that is what people in the business call a beta problem, not an alpha problem. Basically, I needed healthy capital markets to provide positive returns. And it wasn't something you could trade your way out of. I'll give you an example. Pension funds have liability streams extending to the future just as individuals do to buy a house or to pay for retirement to everyday living, whatever. So you have real world dollar denominator, Euro denominator, Canadian dollar denominator, or whatever it is, liabilities. And yet everything that we're taught is on a relative basis. Did you beat the S&P? Did you beat the aggregate index? Did you beat your peers? And it dawned on me, that's the wrong measure. That if the markets are down 10 and you're only down eight, you're superhuman, right? You've outperformed my total basis books, but I still only have 92 cents of the dollar to defuse these future liabilities. Much better to underperform an up market. That sounds counterintuitive, but I'd rather be up eight in an up 10 market, because at least then I have a dollar eight to pay my liabilities.
0: Right, you can't buy and- anything with a relative dollar.
1: Right. And yet everyone measures themselves relatively. Mm -hmm. And so then there's a reason for which I'm sure we'll get to. And so I realized that I was reliant on a healthy economy, which is in turn relying on healthy environmental, social, and financial systems, and then on a healthy capital market to translate that value creation into investable opportunities. So that's the origin story of the book. So in some ways it stretches back 25, 26 years, worked as an institutional investor in various forms. I spent 10 years running a think tank called the IRRC Institute, which was one of the few think tanks that funded both academic and practitioner research in ESG, but also fundamental capital market things. And just kept thinking about the paradigm we seem stuck in and what would happen if we looked outside the paradigm. And Jim Hawley, my co-author, is uh, had was the inventor of universal ownership theory, and Jim and I have been friends for years. Actually, since he interviewed me for his book on universal ownership theory some 25 or 26 years ago, and started talking it over with him, and we decided to write the book.
0: Tell me, and and why now? Was it just that it's a moment in time in your life, or did you do you feel like in some ways your experiences up until this point where were preparing you for you have you been di- have you been processing and digesting this the, the entire time, or?
1: Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And so, in fact, the book was supposed to be written, Jim and I started talking about this five years ago, and then we started talking to other people about it. And those that got the idea loved it and kept asking us to write papers about parts of it. So we presented at the annual Burley conference about time frame. We wrote a white paper for the pension insurance corporation and loved it. And so that delayed the book. And at some point we just said, you know what, we've got to write the book and not keep getting distracted. And it wound up that was around late 19 or mid 2019. And the way publishing works, it, it took us about 18 months to write the book. And then it takes four to six months to get published. So here we are. And when I say it's better to be lucky than good. I will tell you that in the two and a half years since we wrote the white paper for the Pension Insurance Corporation, we did a big launch about some of these ideas in London. There has been a sea change, and I think the world is much more receptive Mm -hmm. to this now. Perhaps it was uh, meant to be Mm -hmm. that we were delayed a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I can understand what you mean. There's five years in the current environment is a lifetime given how much change we've seen and change just seems to be getting more and more rapid as we go but in particular within you know financial markets uh, not just technologically but even within the financial markets which for long periods of time didn't evolve much yeah we've seen a lot of change it's been blowing it's mind-blowing for me i started my you know, career in the late 1990s working at a bank and the first time I ever saw something called an ethical fund was, or a responsible fund was back then. And most of those folks who have been working, you know, since this, you know, 80s and sometimes 70s in that space have really been, you know, toiling in obscurity for most of that time. And it's only really the past few years that you, now you're hard pressed to try to find an investment manager that doesn't do ESG. At least I'm going to use this in a different term than you use it in the book, but at least performatively, if not seriously.
1: That's true. But a lot of the question becomes, as and this isn't the podcast, but there are 150 different forms of ESG. And I think what we talk about in the book is very different because it is actually talking about affecting the systems on which the capital markets rely, as opposed to, or in addition to, I should say, looking at how ESG factors affect individual companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's start getting
0: into the book here. I'm, I'm going to give you my layperson's description of the book. And I, at the risk of being overly reductive, you can tell me how well you think I got a job I've done summarizing kind of the main. So I, I, I might say it something like so for the audience who's listening, who does come from a wide range of backgrounds, some of which would a lot of these terms are going to be new for modern portfolio theory is this you know, big theory that fundamental building block that underpins a lot of and greatly influences how a lot of investment capital moves both directly and because of some of the other theories that have been built upon it. MPT is an important revolution, but it's increasingly showing signs of its age. These weaknesses, blind spots, are preventing investment managers from seeing how to manage their assets in ways that can mitigate some of the big systematic and systemic ESG risks that threaten the market as a whole. Um, How do you think they've done there? (laughs) I'm sure I've reduced it considerably.
1: I've learned (laughs) never to pick a fight with the guy who controls the soundboard on a podcast, um,
0: I'd be curious so, where you think I if, you know, have I. I, I, I just think as you say,
1: look, it has to be reductive. This is a book, and you're not going to read the whole book. Let me try to unpack some of it sure. for your audience. So, the building block of MPT is diversification. Now, Markowitz was not the first person to talk about diversification. We actually trace the phrase "Don't put all your eggs in one basket." back to Don Quixote and Cervantes writing in in 1609 or 1619, I forget which, but Markowitz did come up with the math and the framework to do it. But interestingly, the math was wholly contained in the capital markets. So you had your expected return, expected volatility, expected correlation. And, And volatility was the only risk metric. And so what that did was it said, if you take the marketplace as it is now, the extent market. How do you extract the best possible portfolio through security selection and portfolio construction from the extent market? And MPT actually still does that really well. The problem is to make that work relies on a series of assumptions that the market's sufficiently priced, that investors are rational, that you can't predict the market, or so-called random walk theory. And they all have flaws. And the main flaw of all of them is they separate the capital markets from the real world. So, for instance, Markowitz won a Nobel Prize. He says his theory is based on rationality that... Human beings are risk-adverse, and so you should price up-risk and down as the same. And yet, years later, Daniel Kahneman, and it would have been Tversky had it been alive, won, also won a Nobel Prize for saying, no, humans are not risk-adverse. They're loss-adverse. And we all know about behavioral finance. And the, that immediately knocks out random walk theory. Because in order to have random walk theory, it, it's basically a flip of the coin saying the next flip doesn't rely on the previous one but in fact being loss adverse means you have to know what you bought the stock at so it is reliant or the security it is reliant on previous walk ration is rationality you're not rational you're loss adverse rather than risk adverse but what all these theories did was separate modern portfolio theory from the real world you notice there's no cause of risk, it's just volatility. There's no cause of expected return, it's just expected return. And that enables you to devise the best portfolio from the extent market. The second problem with MPT is diversification works great, but it works great on idiosyncratic risk. And again, we know from a series of academic studies going back to Britson, Beer, Melroney, Hood, Ibbotson, and a whole bunch of really seminal studies that systematic risks of the market affect between 75 and 94% of your return. If you think about that, what that really says is MPT has devised a great tool to, de- to deal with 6 to 25% of your return. So it focuses you on that which matters least, because by separating yourself from the real world, it says you have no way to impact the market. Now, in fact, partially because of the popularity of MPT and the desire, therefore, for prepackaged diversification and the creation of index funds, all of which derive from MPT, we know that you unintentionally affect the market. Risk-on, risk-off markets are investors affecting the market. Index effects are investors missing the market. So what we said was what's different now is investors are trying to deliberately affect risk in the real world before it can metastasize into the market. So investors are trying to affect climate change or gender diversity or industry-wide issues like mining safety. And what they're trying to do is to get the market to re-rate upwards by decreasing the risk levels, and that the systemic risk in the real world that becomes this non-diversifiable systematic risk in the markets, and that is something that Markowitz never anticipated. And it's not that we're smarter than Markowitz; we're not. The guy's brilliant, but the markets have changed. We can see it around us. He was dealing with a market that was eight percent institutionalized and ninety-two percent retail. Everyone's a price taker. We now have markets that are almost exactly the percent with almost ninety percent institutionalized, and you can see the effects of what institutions do much more easily than if you or I were to buy a share of Apple.
0: Yeah, so Again, to maybe break that down. So we've got these underlying I'm assumptions. Sorry, there's a lot. of. No, yeah, that's great. I want to <laughs> unpack this because, again, we've got people coming from different places. So the you know MPT is reliant on these assumptions and these assumptions, at even at the time, probably a number of those assumptions would have been debatable. But whenever you're dealing with financial theory, you're going to make some simplifying assumptions when it complicates things and makes it unnecessarily messy. Is that fair to say? But that some of these Absolutely. assumptions have also become more problematic over time as the markets changed.
1: Einstein said, all theories simplify, some are useful.
0: Right. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, these are very
1: useful in making the math for MPT work. But along the way, we forget that they were simplifying assumptions. We're saying, in fact, the world is more complex. There are feedback loops. You have to pay attention to these.
0: And those of those assumptions where things have changed, y- you're arguing that maybe at the time, and I think, again, I may be missing some other aspects here, but one of the key arguments, I think, in the book is that one of those assumptions was that in the obviously the systemic risks, systematic risks, and I want to actually unpack those terms for the audience in a second, uh, will impact your, you as an investor, but that you as an investor can't impact the broad risk to the market as a whole. You can diversify away the individual risks of the individual investments that you invest in, but that the market at whole has some fundamental underlying risk that you just can't get rid of, and you can't have any impact on it as an investor. And one of the ways in which the world has changed is this, that there are these really big concentrated investors who hold tons of capital and that very much they do have an impact on the risks to the market as a whole, because they sway so much power over the market. Is that?
1: David, you stated that perfectly. I have nothing. Else
0: okay. <laughs> so I, I want to maybe just take a pause. I should have done this already, but so l- let's break down, uh, System, systemic risk, systematic risk, and then idiosynic. Sorry, I guess we have, sorry, systemic risk, market risk, and market risk can be broken down in systematic and unsystematic risk. And there's a whole bunch of different terms. So it makes it extra confusing for people who are trying to follow along because some of these, those three different risks get different labels and different terms associated with them. But maybe break those three down for us.
1: (laughs) Sure. Systemic risks are risks to the real world environmental Social or financial systems. So, for instance, climate change is a risk to the environment, income inequality at a certain point is a risk to the social structure, as is institutionalized racism, the pandemic. Risk to the financial system would be like the global financial crisis, hyperinflation in certain areas, those sorts of things. Those are all the real world, and I, I, I should repeat, the real world is where value is created or destroyed, right? What the capital markets do is find ways to intermediate capital to move it from where it is, to where the real world needs it. And along the way, give the people who do that the investors, you would the pension funds and insurance companies and asset managers a adequate risk return profile for doing so when you do that when you invest your money in the capital markets you are exposed to a host of risks but for mpt theory there are really only two there is diversifiable risk often called idiosyncratic risk because you can diversify in a way right that would be that Ford outperforms or underperforms gm you can diversify those or systematic, or non diversifiable risk, which if you're invested in the car sector, would be for instance, that um, there is a new technology that disrupts automobiles or climate change will affect everything. Um, If you're in the insurance sector, And so systematic or non-diversifiable risk comes in two flavors, one that affects the entire market, risk on risk off markets, the federal reserve affecting interest rates, those sort of affect the entire market or things which affect broad swaths of the market, often by an industry sector. So for instance. Mining safety affects all extractivity.
0: Great. So we've got these, let's just simplify it to these two risks. You've got what's diversifiable and what's not diversifiable. And MPT says that you can't do anything about what's not diversifiable. So what effectively happens, because MPT is so important to how capital investors move capital, it's created an environment where investors don't bother trying to affect systemic risk is that right
1: it is it is we use the phrase performative in the book right one one way um to think about that is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you have been taught throughout your academic training that you can't that the market is what the market is and you can't affect it but you can extract a better or a worse return for the market, you spend your time trying to extract a better or worse return, despite the fact that, as I said, those non-diversifiable systematic risks actually dwarf any impact you could have through security selection or portfolio
0: construction. Because to your point earlier, we see that systematic risk determines up to 95% of your returns And so that's the thing that overwhelmingly is impacting your returns, but you're taught you can't do anything about And that's part of the paradox, MPT paradox you bring up and and describe in the book. You've got a really great, there's lots of great quotes in the book, but one of them is MPT is accepting of, and therefore unintendedly complicit with real world consequences of investors following its precepts. And so maybe just, we've touched on this already, but maybe unpack a little bit further. Again, what problems does this create when investors have this belief and, and act upon it this way?
1: Sure. If, in fact, you don't try to affect systemic risk, and as you say, in the last five years, things have changed tremendously, where everyone does at least pay attention, you wind up thinking everything is diversifiable. In effect, you have a Maslow's hammer situation where everything looks like a nail. And so one of the classic examples of this was the global financial crisis of 8 Investors kept on buying horrible packages of loans and securities and kept saying, well, we're diversified, right? The package contains 100,000 loans. How could they all go bad without understanding that by continuing to buy loans without understanding or criticizing the underwriting standards by which those loans were packaged, they were actually encouraging more and more bad underwriting, because the banks weren't holding them. They were selling them to investors. Investors were chasing yield. They weren't looking at what was happening and they were relying on diversification to protect them. And I will try and keep this polite, but in effect, what was happening is they were being handed a pile of manure. They were saying that they were being diversified, so it was being spread thinly, and then they would buy more and more until ultimately the stench became too much to bear and it all collapsed. So that's a great example of investors who weren't the only reason for the 2008-09 uh, financial crisis, but they clearly were a contributing factor by relying on MPT technique to deal with something that was not an MPT problem.
0: Yeah, that's a great, uh, really great example. So. I'm going to try not to jump all over the place here because my mind uh, is going in a lot of different directions. But I want to try to, as much as possible, follow a narrative here. But part of what I think comes up and I find struggle I struggle with as I talk to folks in this space is this sort of connection between the big systemic issues, things that threaten these big exogenous risks to the entire our entire ways of being like climate change or wealth inequality, where you have potentially overthrowing a government or our systems, our uh, ways of, of being that these things are all very long term risks. And also, I find that a lot of investors don't see it as possible or practical that they, not maybe possible is too strong a term, but practical that, that they're going to affect in any real world scenario our investment returns. And so I think part of it maybe is a time frame problem. You talk in the issue in the book around our issue of discounting risks that are way out in the t- in, in the future. But also, I wonder as well whether just like not understanding the, the mechanisms by which you know, information becomes material, and you talk about that in the in the book as well. Material meaning, hey, this is really important to my financial returns. These sort of real world life events, how they become material financially in the investment mm-hmm.
1: concept. Yeah, I think we're all a little schizophrenic. We are in the midst of this uh, transition. Where people are starting to pay attention to these issues much more than they did before. And you have sort of counterfactual things. What would the market look like if investors hadn't paid any attention to climate change going back to pre Paris or whatever? I, I think there are isolated data points, probably not enough for a finance guy, but enough for an economist <laughs> to say directionally how these matter. One of the data points we use in the book which is enough for a finance person because it was a unique set of circumstances that would be too long to go to but there's something called proxy access in the united states which is how investors can nominate board members and it was a rule and then it wasn't a rule it was overturned in court and then there was an ability to what's called private order which is to do this company by company but it was too expensive to do and finally new york city pension funds decided they were going to take this on And the day they made the announcement and they targeted 75 companies. So again, broad swath often picked for they had other problems like environmental problems or, or executive compensation issues or no diversity. And three professors, including one economist from the SEC, found that there was a 52 basis point excess return just on the announcement. When you project that out across the marketplace, if they had targeted the whole marketplace, that would be a hundred and twenty billion dollar lift at mm-hmm. that time to the market. And what the academicians who looked at this said was in fact, had it been done regulatorily, where it was guaranteed to happen and be universal be even more. So these are real big numbers. We there are other Ways that one could look at this. For instance, we're coming out of a pandemic, so a lot of people are thinking, "What's the next potential health problem?" And one of the big ones is antimicrobial resistance. These are, you know, the super bugs that don't react to normal antibiotics. And there have been two initiatives that I'm aware of to deal with this. One, Nordea went and looked for where the antibiotics were being manufactured in India, found there was a lot of groundwater effluent breeding grounds for superbugs and they intervened with the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers and the government and that is being cleaned up. The other, just recently, the Shareholder Commons and Paul Risman put in a resolution at Young Brands, the parent to Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell and, um, and Pizza Hut, sorry, was missing the third. And normally these resolutions are, what are you doing about overuse of antibiotics in your food in your supplier? But they went a step further and said, what about the whole agribusiness? And young the agreed it was an issue. They're going to come out with a report on that and what can be done. And so I, I say this because you were talking about how does this affect things? It turns out the UK government and Wellcome Trust did a report that had the microbial resistance a couple of years ago and said, left unchecked, by 2050, would cost the global economy a hundred trillion dollars and 10 million excess lives. And it's not some dystopian nightmare. We're already losing 50,000 people to premature death in just Europe and the US because of antimicrobial resistant bugs. And so dealing with these issues is both a people and planet issue, but also a dollar and cents issue. The It's not that MPT wouldn't apply in these cases. It doesn't apply to those situations. But to the extent that you are making the agribusiness more sustainable, the food business more sustainable, the pharmaceutical business more sustainable, you are having those com- those sectors re-rate, and then you can apply a PT to extract a better return off of a higher base. And so that's really how they play together.
0: Yeah. And so you've made it clear through the the book that MPT is valuable. You're not proposing that we discard it entirely, but that we need to transition to something that, that is a more fulsome understanding of how investments interact with the real world. And there's a great quote, I'll quote you here. At some point in the future, MPT will be remembered for its important transition role to a more holistic investment paradigm rather than as a stable end state.
1: I think that's correct, what we're calling it, and I should mention Bill Burkhart and Steve Weidenberg have a great book out called 21st Century Investing, and both Steve and Bill and Jim and I think of this as systems level investing, um, and what that means is that you're layering your intentional concern for the environmental, social, and financial systems in the real world atop your portfolio level construction and therefore trying from Bill and Steve's point of view to save the people planet from our point of view to re-rate the marketplace so that you can have an even better risk return uh,
0: profile. Yeah, I think that's such a – you phrased it really well in the book around think of it as if the the entire market as a whole were your portfolio and what you're trying to do is reduce the risk of the entire market, not – Individual industries, sectors, you know, companies uh, within your portfolio. For those
1: finance geeks among your audience, if the whole, if the market were portfolio, try to improve the Sharpe ratio. Right. In other words, you try to improve the amount of excess of return for excess risk. Right. For, for uh, the entire market.
0: Yeah. So your return per unit of risk. And so, you talk about these organizations and people who are focused on doing that as beta activism is that right
1: correct because they are we try to distinguish it from what bill ackman or carl Icahn does in an individual company because they are starting with what is the systemic real world risk they're tackling and even at an individual company I gave the young brand situation but we recently had engine one at Exxon talking about this vis-a-vis fossil fuels and carbon even if even an action at an individual company can be focused on systemic risks and to us they are beta activists as opposed to focusing on the idiosyncratic issues at that.
0: Point. So that would be a, an important distinction between what you call beta activism and what I think most folks who are in the ESG space would be familiar with, shareholder activism, where you're engaging a particular company and you want that company to improve its practices, which again is addressing the those idiosyncratic, those diversifiable risks in your portfolio but not the not necessarily the market as a whole.
1: But this is actually the big change that's happened. We go through a brief history of corporate governance and ESG from the founding of the Dutch East Indies Company. So the first modern corporation that you had the first modern corporate governance scandals up through stage one, 1980s, fight Green meal, fight rent seeking by executives, executive comp type corporate governance into stage two, which was PRIs founded. People started looking at ESNG, but it was still at a digital company, so we call it stage three, which is highlighted by these beta activist campaigns. And they are often shareholder activism or shareholder engagement or stewardship, all of which have overlapping meanings, and particularly when they're done in collaboration. So you have the net zero coalition or series, or a host of environmental groups. The, um, there's a great group called the uh, Mining and tailing Safety Initiative that's been working on mining um, issues headed by the Church of England commissioners and the AP Fund in, in Sweden. And so there's a lot of collaborative work around these beta active activist issues and traditional stewardship activities clearly play into it and have evolved to become a major portion
0: And so, like, what do you see happening, just given the the role that you've had, I'm sure you still have lots of friends and contacts who are institutional money managers. And so those that are, like, where do you see the, the, what's happening that's making those people who are becoming those beta activists do that and break free from and and sort of disconnect from the limits of MPT, which would tell them that they shouldn't bother with this stuff because they can't do it, is it just, they're seeing it in real in practice and it's, and they're getting rewarded for doing those things. And so they continue to to take on, trying to mitigate those risks or they like, how's that happening in practice?
1: I think there are three things. You mentioned how things become material. Well, things become material when the actions of companies or markets diverges materially from, I I shouldn't use material to define material, diverges, a lot from ethical or social norms. So it used to be perfectly okay for GE to dump PCBs into the Hudson River because no one knew any better in the 1910s, right? Not allowable anymore. Our understanding of science affected our moral outrage, et cetera. Slavery was an essential part of capitalism in the 1820s. In fact, loans backed by slaves were the largest element of the UK financial market, I hate to say. There's still modern slavery, but it's generally not open and above board in the capital markets. And so things become material that way. And so there's just been a natural evolution as we have learned what the impacts of climate change are as modern knowledge has evolved, as modern ethics have evolved. The second thing is I think there has been a feeling in the last 20 years or 30 years that government has not been as effective and that the third change, which plays into that is how large and institutionalized finance has been, that finance now has the wherewithal to do that and to, to sub extent the argument we're was, was, is it this government's role? And the answer is. Um, as they say in, when you take improv classes, yes, and it is government's role and its finance's role and its informed citizens' role. But finance, now has the ability to do it because of change. so evolving social and scientific mores, a less trust that government will do anything. And an increased institutionalization of finance, where finance used to be 2% of GDP and now it's 8%. And you sit there and at that point, you affect my life. You have a responsibility for things outside of your balance sheet.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's a really helpful dissection of that. For those who are listening, the episode 27 is with Delilah Rothenberg. And I know, John, you've spoken to and Close with her and some of the work she's doing around some of the other dangers and risks with the institutionalization of capital and some of the other kind of compounding problems that can create if we're not mindful of them. And so if anybody's listening, that's a great episode to pair with this one a little bit. So I'd love to potentially switch gears here. I, maybe I'm just going to ask you, I, this is how I'm thinking about this kind of phenomenon of where, because I find it interesting. And I imagine for those who are not in, steeped in, in the investment markets, Uh, An investment management industry, it might be hard to get your head around how this happens, but that how you could have such a large percentage of investors just not thinking about how they can mitigate these systemic risks. And I I imagine a little bit like they've been taught the rules of the game and this falls outside of those rules that they've been taught. And so they're stymied by that. And some of the beta activism you were talking about is really like some of it, you gave the example of the New York um, City Pension where you're changing the proxy voting laws. And so this is a policy and advocacy issue or you're, or you're not changing the laws, but going to the companies enforcing and pressuring them and or you're going to government and trying to get policy changed. And or the, so a lot of these things are, seem to be things that aren't from the traditional investors playbook. Is that fair or is that?
1: Absolutely. So I, um, I have been on a series of advisory groups in Washington. And I remember one regulator who was actually very investor friendly and very knowledgeable saying to me, we need more investors. And I suggested several people. And there were people like this gentleman in New York City who had this huge impact. he said, no, real investors. And what he meant by that was someone who stares at a Bloomberg terminal mm-hmm. and moves electronic dots and buys and sells securities. And we have been taught, when I said earlier on the book is not a modest endeavor, we're trying to redefine what investing is. We have been taught that if you're not analyzing individual securities, or buying and selling, or doing that to match an index, or in fundamental analysis, that everything else isn't investing. Now, think how ridiculous, particularly in public markets, Think how ridiculous that is. If you were investing in physical assets, if you ran 10 candy stores and you wanted to maximize the return of candy stores, you'd care about how the outside of the store looked, whether or not you were selling things that were poisonous or not poisonous, right? Right. Basically, there are things you have to do to be a long-time, sustainable, physical investor. But somehow, because MPT said, no, there are these three capital market assumptions, expected risk, expected correlation, expected return, and they are all defined relative to other securities in the marketplace. We don't have to look outside the marketplace. We therefore, for 50 or 75 years, only were concerned with things that were within the capital markets. And therefore the only real, and I put that Hmm. in air quotes, which your listeners can't see, but trust me, they were air quotes. (laughs) The only real investors are those that are buying and selling securities. Ironically, they have less impact than the people who affect policy, than the people who affect what academia teaches just by nature of the math. If you're going to affect 75 or 90% of the return, even if you don't do it as efficiently as those that are affecting 25 or 20% of the return, then you have, you're starting with a 3 to 1, a 4 to 1, a 10 to 1 ratio of what you can affect. And so, no, people were not taught this. They were taught how to analyze securities. How to build a portfolio all of which again as you said we're not dismissing their important skills but they're important skills within a paradigm and the paradigm is the markets are not necessarily the most efficient markets in the world despite what efficient market hypothesis says because investors had not been and are only now increasingly dealing with these issues that cause real-world value destruction or value creation. Now, as I I said earlier on, we're a little schizophrenic. I have to tell you, it is changing. You can't read any of the magazines or newsletters or blogs every day, there's a new group doing something. I am um, pleased to be a judge for the PRI Stewardship Awards. I did it last year as well. They got 190 submissions Mm -hmm. All of which claim that they are dealing with systemic risk issues in a collaborative fashion through engagement or other techniques. Now, whether they're all doing well or not, I don't know, and even if I do, I couldn't say because the judging's not done yet. (laughs) But there are at least 190 investor groups working on it. So I don't know if that's 1,900 investors or 5,000 investors or whatever who are working along these lines. Some broadly on things like climate change, some narrowly, or or modern slavery, some narrowly on what Facebook's governance looks like. Right.
0: So I want to switch gears here for a moment. There's, I'd love to take the concepts and what you're talking about in the book and kind of use it in a practical way. And I, there's a, actually a really great podcast called Rational Reminder. They had uh, Professor uh, Lubas Pastor on, who's a un- University of Chicago professor, who uh, I don't know, you may know. And I know you've had a chance to hear this clip. I'm going to play it because the audience will get to hear some of it. And not this is not as a, a gotcha because I have respect for the professor and the work that he's done. And these are intelligent conversations. But it, I'd love for you to just respond with, because it, it represents for me just one example of some of the more a more traditional MBT mindset, how it would look at ESG type of stuff, and your book, of course, is pointing out some of the limitations of that thinking. So I'd love to tie in some of the thoughts here. Is that does that work?
1: Sure, he's he's a great thinker. Be glad to listen to. Him.
2: We can expect based on that. Uh, another topic that comes up a lot, interestingly, on within our podcast audience, and I guess it's just a popular topic in general. But for whatever reason, our our audience seems to be very interested in it, which is sustainable investing. Now, you had an excellent paper on this that we we talked about, I think we've talked about a few times on the podcast. But the the model in the paper suggests that green assets have low expected returns. And this is a a big point of discussion with our podcast audience, (laughs) have low expected returns because investors enjoy holding them and because green assets hedge against climate risk. Could, Could you just describe the model in the paper and how it arrives at those predictions?
3: And I have an hour for that, right? <laughs> uh, no, I'll try to give you a 45-second summary. So, in model, it's a very simple model. It's the simplest model that uh, we could think of for capturing the effects of sustainable investment. It's, I was thinking of like a textbook type of model. So, we have firms and we have investors. Firms differ in their sustainability. So, they range from green to brown. They okay, think of green firms as being green and Brown is brown. I guess I don't have to get into the details there. And investors differ in the degree to which they care. So some investors care a lot about sustainability, and others don't care at all. Those who care derive pleasure not only from financial wealth, but also from holding shares of green firms. And they dislike holding shares of brown firms. Okay? What happens in equilibrium is that there's ex- excess demand. There's extra demand for green stocks. And as a result, green stocks are going to have higher stock prices. And as a result, they're going to have lower expected returns. So think of it this way. You have two streams of cash flows. One is green, one is brown. If investors want to hold a green stream of cash flows because they derive pleasure from it, then the price of that green stream of cash flows will be higher, which means that you're paying more for the same stream of cash flows, and that means the expected return is going to end up being lower. And then the second channel, which you've mentioned, is that green stocks seem to be a better hedge against climate risk. And that's why they can offer lower expected returns. But sometimes when I talk to students or practitioners, they make the following point. They say, I expect green firms to do better uh, because they're not exposed to all these ESG risks. And I'm always surprised by that argument because If it's true that green firms are less exposed to ESG risk, that means they're less risky. That means that they can afford to offer lower expected returns. Exactly. Wow. And still be attracted to investors. And if if you say brown firms are more exposed to ESG risk, that's true. But that's precisely why people are willing to pay less for brown firms. So that going forward, brown firms have to compensate investors for this uh, ESG risk. And I think the channel we emphasize in the paper through which this happens is that If we get a bad climate shock, okay, suppose there's wildfires in Australia or something, governments will feel compelled to act. And they will pass regulations that will favor green firms and uh, penalize brown firms. So essentially what happens is that in these states of the world in which climate gets worse, and these are bad states of the world. We, we want something that hedges against those bad states of the world. But what happens in these bad states of the world is that green firms will do well and brown firms will do poorly. So it's effectively, green firms are going to have a negative beta with respect to climate shocks. They will be the hedge, whereas brown firms will be exposed to this.
0: I'm going to pause and we can restart throughout, but I want to give you a chance to maybe respond. If you're hearing anything there, you want to. Sure.
1: There's, a there's a there's as you would say, a lot to unpack here. Professor Prestor is working in a perfect MPT equilibrium model. What that means is he assumes that the market has priced both expected return and expected risk correctly. And I know from listening to this clip he will deal with that later saying he doesn't have any special knowledge, so he assumes markets do. Right. But he actually does have knowledge. We know that markets hyper discount future cash flows and future risks. In fact, even within an MPT model, one can probably assume that the green firms have been, their future cash flows have been hyper-discounted and that the brown firms' future risks have been hyper-discounted. So there may be an arbitrage there.
0: And so, when you say that, that means they're not they, efficiently they, pricing those risks. Right, and, they're not
1: efficiently pricing. We know that cash flows that are 15, eight years away are prices if they're 15 years away and probably the cash flows that are 15 years away are not priced at all.
0: Maybe. And you talk, sorry, and I'm just keep interrupting, you talk a little bit in the book about how we're predispositioned. Our human nature probably Once programs us to that,
1: do you, that. <laughs> yeah. it, it does. It has to do with biology yeah, right. and where your brain does these what are called intertemporal trade-offs, which are now, by now versus later.
0: People can read the book to get into all that. <laughs> it's actually
1: fascinating, but it, it's... It's yeah. a big topic, uh, yeah. It's a big topic. The second thing is he doesn't, Deal. he assumes everything's perfectly priced and that if all market information is known. So he is accepting efficient market hypothesis and anyone who accepts efficient market hypothesis and rationality at a time when we're looking at meme stocks going to the roof right. or other things. I just, it, you could be wrong for a long time and he later says there can be periods of outperformance or he is, as he said, constructing a very simple. Issue. The second thing is, this is all relative to itself. Again, the fact of the matter is that if he says green firms have re-rated higher, then someone benefited from the green firms re-rating higher. It also assumes a certain amount of stasis among what is a green firm and what is a brown firm. And in fact, there are ESG, the whole idea, I don't believe there are ESG firms and not ESG firms. ESG affects all firms and all firms have, investments have impact and it can change directionally. So if for instance, engine one is successful at Exxon, that could be a brown form that is moving to a green right, firm. Yeah. And so there will be an excess return. And he would argue people know that so it's perfectly priced in already. We just fundamentally disagree on whether or not there's an efficient market hypothesis there. But the main thing is he's looking at it from the point of view of relative to each other. He's not considering what supporting or having brown firms do, does to the overall marketplace. Or, as he says, as green firms become more powerful, what they could do positively to the marketplace. And what we're saying is there is more to investing than merely picking between green and brown firms. If you are an index investor, you probably hold both. There is engagement, stewardship, public policy, etc., cetera, to get the mixed, what would you call it, olive green and brown, to get the mixed camouflage olive mm-hmm. to become more green. And that that will have more impact than correctly picking green or brown firms.
0: Awesome. I'm going to keep playing a a little more of the clip and we can respond as we go here. But the key is that 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 hedge is already in the
2: price today.
3: Precisely. As long as investors are rational, as long as investors truly care about ESG risks and they understand what's going on, then, yeah, they they will pay more. This is a second reason to pay more for green firms because they offer this hedge. It's just
2: fascinating because that's the argument that we hear all the time is that green firms are going to do better in this climate apocalypse, to be extreme about it, that's coming but the, this argument is that fact is already in the price, meaning the expected returns are actually lower. That's that's mind-blowing. Me?
0: I'll just pause it there. Did you want to respond to anything there, Eastman?
1: No, I think we, we said it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, he says, as long as investors are rational, right, as long as right. they're priced in. We know investors are not rational.
0: There's our disagreement right there. Are investors rational? And you're saying that that we've got evidence A, that they're
1: is, not. A, investors are not rational. B, there is discounting directionally, systemically c everything's not in the pro and d you can't assume stasis and that it also assumes that investors are only price takers in this case also only risk takers what we're saying is through beta activism you can be a risk maker you can mitigate risk right. and he would then say so it should re-rate yes what a great way to create quote alpha end quote although it's not really Or excess return, let's call it. I go after Exxon. I change what it does. It becomes a green firm. It re-rates per the professor's argument. I get the benefit of that re-rating. Maybe the expected return from some point in the future declines. But then I do it again and again. And so he is assuming that everyone is a price taker and a risk taker. We are suggesting that outside of the capital, the traditional trading element security selection of the capital markets you could actually affect risk and that is being a price maker and a risk maker not a price taker
3: you you can make that argument but if you make that argument you have to add the assumption that markets don't understand this and i find that like a a touch arrogant it's like saying i understand this but markets don't you know warren buffett doesn't understand this AQR doesn't understand this I, i i find it simpler and more humble to Assume that these risks are already embedded in prices.
2: Wow, you, you blew my mind there because that completely flips <laughs> the the common narrative that we hear all the time as a counter argument to to why the the expected returns are the the returns people expect as opposed to expected returns. Little distinction there, are, are, are higher because of, of what you just said actually makes the expected returns lower. That's. uh Yeah, that that was a, a huge takeaway i think for us and for
3: everybody listening too now having said that it's not clear that green firms must underperform over all periods right so in the long run our model makes this prediction but you can have shorter periods of time in which green firms outperform and in fact in our model we derive what we call an esg factor which captures shifts in tastes during a period in which these tastes shift unexpectedly in particular, during periods in which investors' tastes shift towards green firms and or customers' tastes shift towards green products, as long as these shifts are unexpected, green firms will outperform brown firms because green firms have positive betas with respect to the ESG factor. Brown firms have negative betas. So if the ESG factor has a positive realization, then green firms will be pulled up and brown firms will be pulled down.
1: We, we are saying essentially the same thing, yeah. which is, as he says, as long as it is unexpected, right. and so it comes to a question of valuation and are the efforts to affect systemic risk in the real world yet priced into the market? And I would argue that is a moving target. And I don't know whether they would or not, when I disagree with the professor, look, some people will think Tesla is undervalued, some people think it's overvalued, some people think it's a green firm because of environmental issues, some people think it's a brown firm uh-huh. of human capital. That's what makes markets is people disagree on pricing. What I think the professor went a step too far on is in the assumption of equilibrium in efficient markets. He discounts those as long as it's unexpected because if you say that everything's priced in, nothing's unexpected. And I think there are time periods, as he does, mm-hmm. when green firms will outperform, when ESG factors will have a positive return and times when they will have negative returns. That's fine. But to suggest that systemically they are going to have be lower returning, I think is a step too far for all the reasons we just outlined.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it doesn't deal with the overall market. It only deals with the relative.
0: i'm going to play uh, a little bit further here because they get into uh, some other interesting kind of aspects of this
3: well, this can only last for as long as these tastes are shifting unexpectedly
2: okay that was my next question is how, how long can that effect go on for oh, that's that's
0: is this a sorry just to stop there is this a point of disagreement for you i don't know but disagreement because he doesn't state what type of time frame he thinks this can play out over, but do you view this as, and maybe I've got this wrong, but so you're agreeing that this is a process of kind of re-rating and that, but I might expect you to say something like, this can just, I don't know that there is an end to this. We can continually mitigate risk, these systemic risks. I don't know that we'll get to an let end state where they're all gone.
1: Slightly, let me answer it a slightly different way, David. We looked at a hundred studies of ESG factors and evaluation including some of the ones we mentioned earlier and data points. And I am the first to admit, this is a back of the envelope estimate, but we think that these sort of systemic beta activist campaigns have already contributed two to $5 trillion to mm. global wealth. Now I can say that because things have re-rated, the future expected return, right? is lower, which is what the professor would say, or I can say, you didn't see those two to five trillion dollars coming along. I don't know what will happen in the future, but that were we to not continue this way, I think you would see markets re-rate down. That I am pretty confident of whether we are at, I, I hate to coin the phrase peak sustainability, I tend to doubt, but the professor's argument would be correct if we were at peak sustainability. Right. And that's the only time I would think the professor's argument would be correct.
3: Okay.
0: Uh, that makes sense.
3: Okay. Interesting. It can go on for as long as the, there are unexpected shifts. And I actually believe we have lived through such a period in recent years. I couldn't have imagined 10 years ago how much people would care about our planet and the environment and so I'm very happy about this it just I I didn't foresee it so I would say that there has been an unexpected shift in taste towards green products and green assets and for as long as this shift lasts unexpectedly (laughs) things are good but note that it's not enough to say oh going forward we know people will migrate from fossil fuel cars to electric cars. That's not enough because that's also embedded in prices, right? We all know that there's a move towards electric cars. The question is, that move going to be faster than what the market expects or not? If it's faster, then green firms will continue performing well. If it's slower, then the opposite will happen. So
2: interesting. So in your model, does sustainable investing result in a positive social impact?
3: It does. It does. We have a very simple definition of of social impact. Essentially, it's a product of the firm's greenness and how big the firm is. We show that sustainable investing has positive social impact for two reasons. Uh, one is it makes firms greener. So firms choose to become greener. And interestingly, firms choose to become greener not because managers somehow care. In our model, managers simply want to maximize market value. Okay, so our managers are like Milton Friedman managers. They want to maximize market value. And yet they make their firms greener because that's the way to increase the market values of their firms. So that's the beauty of this. You don't need any engagement, don't need any activism, don't need any proxy voting. Even without them, sustainable investing will make firms greener. And then there's a second channel, which is a cost of capital channel. That in our model, sustainable investing pushes up the cost of capital for brown firms and reduces the cost of capital for green.
0: I'll pause you there and maybe let you respond to that because I know we're getting close to our, our time with you here, John.
1: I, I agree with him on those issues. We suggest two new concepts in the book, extended risk and extended intermediation. And what we mean by that is adding a time frame to the normal standards of what your risk and return are. In terms of how the future cash flows, which are the result of your investing ticket spent. So, for instance, there are pecuniary returns, what cash flows you get, and non-pecuniary returns. So, as an example, if increased income inequality causes social upheaval such that you have to live in a gated community in your retirement years where you're saving for, or even worse, you have to live outside the retirement community looking in. What's the property discount rate Mm. for that in today's investment? And so I think the professor is absolutely correct in saying there are things we don't foresee. Ten years ago, you know, perhaps it was the Green Revolution. In the last year, we've seen focuses on racial justice and economic justice, economic inequality. And so I do think that there are things become material because humans evolve and our knowledge evolves. And I think it is an assumption with which I disagree to suggest stasis, which is in effect what the efficient market hypothesis is, that we can see what will be material 10 years out. Yes, people predicted a Coronavirus epidemic, but it didn't get paid attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, scientists were talking about climate change, 10 years before the markets picked up on it. And so the question becomes, if we look for what my friends Jerome Tagger, and Raj Thirothran call preventable surprises, Which is what a lot of this beta activism now focuses Mm -hmm. on what can we do to cause the market to Mm re-rate i don't know that we are near to exhausting the supply of risks that are systemic in the real world so as to reduce non-diversifiable systematic risk in the markets if we get to that point it will be both a much richer world, people will have much better returns. And up until that point, maybe less going forward, but it'll also be a much more livable world. So that's a problem that I hope to leave to my children
0: awesome uh, just in, in, in summary what, what do you think what this mean all of this means and for your book and the concepts you're talking about here and what we've just talked about for the average investor what should they be thinking about is this worthwhile for them to continue trying to make a positive impact and if so what mechanisms do you think ordinary investors have
1: the average individual the retail investor number one find out what your asset managers policies are Many asset managers publish stewardship reports, read them. Don't just rely on looking at the one, three, five year returns or the stars or whatever. Increasingly, this is an issue. Number two, I serve on a mutual fund board. I have served on that mutual fund board for 15 years. Do you know how many letters I've gotten from the end use investors about these issues? Zero. Really? zero every mutual fund every ETF has a board of directors feel free to write us tell us you care about these things and so I think that just as an individual who you give your money to matters and what you tell them you want them to do with your money matters this year in the last two years we have seen a huge change in how BlackRock Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street Act. There's a reason for it. They heard from their investors. They've heard general, more often from their institutional investors than from the retail ones, for the reasons I just said. But they've heard that you can't just ignore climate change anymore. You've got to do something. You can't ignore all these other issues. You've got to vote. You can't just say you're having quiet engagement. You've got to proxy vote. You've got to engage. You have to take stands on public policy. Those are all equally important parts of investing
0: as moving so we dots Listen, I know we've tipped you a little bit past your time. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and talk about the book. I'm going to link in the show notes to where people can go and buy the book. I would highly encourage them to do and to share it. I know I'm buying a bunch of copies and I'm going to send it to some folks uh, I know who I think would be enlightened by some of the, the, the concepts you're, you're sharing in there. And yeah, I again, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, much for work. having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, I can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast.
3: Here's the, the Impact Investing Podcast.
0: Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.